The number one question we get from listeners is, do we have a written step-by-step roadmap to guide you on how to train your dog? We don't, but Standing Stone Supply does. They're the creators of the complete step-by-step dog training program that takes your dog from brand new puppy and gets it well on its way to that finished dog you've always dreamed of. They've mapped out the timelines to help guide you, the videos for every step of the way to show you, and even have the needed gear made into shopping lists to make it easy to supply you. Check out the course at StandingStoneSupply.com to gain unlimited access for all current as well as future lessons and be sure to use the code GDIY to save 10% at sign up. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. I think another great thing about hunting dogs is just from a a pure functionality standpoint, I think our breeds are are a little bit less likely to have these problems because we expect them and need them to be athletes. And and so for the last several decades, if uh, you had a young dog that blew out its knee at two years of age, they weren't going to get bred. So these genes got removed from the gene pool. So now you end up with a lot of these hard-charging dogs that are pretty healthy thanks to the selective breeding that people had done in the past. One thing we all love to do with our dogs is hit the road and go on new adventures. In order for that to happen, we have to be able to safely and efficiently travel with our dogs. Dakota 283 is dedicated to building unparalleled pet protection and tailgate lifestyle products for you and your best friends. Their one-piece roto-molded kennels have many options such as the Hero Series for military-grade crates, T1 low-profile kennels that will fit truck beds with tonneau covers, and their most popular G3 Series that's available in any size you'll need. Dakota not only offers many different sizes and styles of kennels, they also offer products and accessories to help with food and water transport, truck bed storage, and even grooming stations. Have a new puppy and only want to buy one kennel instead of buying multiple ones as they grow? Look at the Forever Kennel Insert Divider that gives you the ability to buy a kennel now and adjust the size inside as needed. No matter what you need to get you on your next adventure with your dog, Dakota has it for you. Check them out now at Dakota283.com. Your new 283 lifestyle is just one click and free shipping away. Welcome back to another week of GDIY. I'm running solo this week because Nick is an old man. Uh, That actually ties into his tip of the week. Uh, He says, always go to bed on time. Don't fight your body. That's a battle you'll never win. I don't know if that is a quote Nick is just referencing or if that is actually a Nick Adair quote straight from his mouth. Uh, but yeah, I got in a little late. Um, and when I say little late, it, it, it's it's nine o'clock. So Nick just goes to bed early. Uh, but I spent the week over in Dallas, Texas. Uh, got to spend some time with family and then uh, had a great Father's Day. My first Father's Day. And I know it's Nick's uh, first Father's Day, but got to spend a little bit of time down in Fort Worth, Texas. Got to pretend to be a cowboy. Uh, went to King Ranch, made sure I had to pick up uh, my six and a half month old son, a cowboy hat. So he is, uh, he's ready. He's ready to go out there. But um, man, one thing I noticed in Dallas, it was about mid nineties, um, basically all week. Um, so we're definitely in the dog days of summer where it's almost impossible to just go out and run your dog. So uh, 
me and Nick wanted to, to make sure that uh, during this time of the summer, uh, this is the time we load up on uh, information and knowledge. And we are starting our first part um, of our vet series um, with Mark Alcott. So there's a ton of great information in there. Uh, but this is not the first one we're going to do. So make sure if you guys have any questions or uh, want Nick to dive a little bit deeper, maybe there was a, a subject uh, you want to us to touch on a little bit more, uh, make sure to reach out to us, uh, comment on that Instagram post, um, of the episode that goes out tomorrow. Um, email us, let us know, um, if you guys have any questions or want to dive a little bit deeper in with Mark. Other than that, make sure I want to, uh, talk about the Patreon patrons. Uh, we've got, you know, some discount codes up there that kind of pay for the, you know, the Patreon fee itself. Um, but we are going to start releasing some, um, member only content. Um, and that first one's going out, um, pretty soon. So if you're not signed up already to be a Patreon patron, uh, you want to make sure you get that because, uh, like I said, we're, we're adding some more informational stuff on there. And some of those episodes are going to be straight, uh, only for our members. Uh, but I would be remiss, um, if I didn't mention, uh, a little something else. Um, and that would be our reviews. Now, be honest, uh, a lot of the times when I pick what review I'm going to read, it's because of, I think the name is funny, um, or the title of the review is funny. And I still encourage you to go and leave a review and have a funny username or make a funny title because there's a good chance it's going to get read on the podcast. Uh, but I chose this one really because it touches on the heart of why we created this podcast. Um, it's from Allison a 54. Uh, this one is titled best of the bird dog podcasts. I love, love the variety of content and people featured on the show. Started listening to GDIY after my husband purchased his first bird dog. I've learned a lot through listening and inspires me to get involved and maybe train, compete and hunt with a dog of my own someday. And that's just awesome. I mean, if one, if we can inspire someone to want to start getting into the bird dog world, if it's just for a meat dog or if it's to train to a versatile champion, that's incredible. Um, and then two, um, if we can be a resource along the way, um, to make your dog better and make your hunting experience better and really just make your, you know, your best friend, your bird dog, um, uh, closer and have a better relationship. That's, that's kind of what it's all about. Um, that's why, uh, we do this every single week. Uh, we, we take a step away from our babies and our, and our wives and we go into, uh, our rooms and and record this podcast every week. So really appreciate it, Allison. Make sure you email us and we'll, we'll send you a sticker or two to put on your truck or your kennel or your cooler. Uh, but really appreciate it guys. Um, if you guys have any questions again for, uh, Mark or, um, some of the other podcasts we're coming up, make sure to email them to us, um, throw them on, uh, you know, Instagram or Facebook underneath uh, the post that Nick does for this episode. Um, we really want to build this podcast uh, around this community and we want to make sure that we're hitting the questions that you guys have. Um, make sure you go support our sponsors. Uh, it's hot out there. You probably need a little bird, bird dog whiskey. Um, you need to make sure that your dog's fed with some Yukonuba. And then, of course, my dogs were nice and cool, even though they were in the back of my truck uh, in their Dakota 283 kennel. Uh, I am not much of a pitchman, but there's my pitch. I uh, hope you guys have a great week. 
See you. We get asked all the time what the most important thing to consider is when training and living with a hunting dog, and they're often surprised when they hear us answer with proper nutrition. It's pretty obvious when you think about it, though. It doesn't matter how well the dog is trained if it doesn't have the right fuel. The saying garbage in, garbage out rings true in dog nutrition. Yukonuba's premium performance lineup goes beyond just protein and fat with a number of different formulas designed to fuel your dog's specific activity level while supporting their recovery and optimizing their nutrient delivery. The proof is in the pudding, or lack thereof, when you make the switch to Yukonuba. You'll see immediate results in your dog's energy level and drive. They have a formula for every type of dog from your hardest working dog in the field to your laziest retired dog on the couch. Head on over to yukanubasportingdog.com to find the right formula for your hunting partner. Make the switch today and let Yukonuba fuel your dog so you can focus on what you and your dog actually love to do, work. Picture this, you just finished a long day's hunt, or a long day in the training field grooming your next champion. You've run through your entire string of dogs in anticipation for the next fall. You think the day's over. It's not though. Your day's not over until you let that ugly dog hunt. No hunting or training session is complete without capping it off with one of the spirits from Ugly Dog Distillery. They're Michigan raised and purebred handcrafted spirits. They have everything you need from vodka and gin to your more traditional after hunt choice Kentucky bourbon. Head on over to UglyDogDistillery.com to check availability within your state. And if you have an upcoming event that's alcohol friendly, then be sure to reach out to us and see if we can add another Ugly Dog to the lineup. We'll tell you right now, we aren't much on flavored whiskeys, but you have to try their peanut butter whiskey. Unlike other peanut butter whiskeys out there, Ugly Dogs is made with real Kentucky bourbon and not just grain alcohol with syrup. So after your next hunt or a long day of testing and you're trying to decide what to drink, reach for the bottle with Ruger, the German wire hair pointer on it. It was handcrafted by people just like us, dog people. Every adventure starts somewhere. Make sure yours includes an ugly dog at your side. Explore responsibly. All right, everybody. We are joined for part one of this veterinary series with Mark Alcott. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Absolutely. I appreciate you coming on and kind of sharing your knowledge and firsthand experience on a lot of these matters because, you know, it's one of those things that I, I feel personally in the gun dog world, you know, there's a couple different uh, aspects in the dog world as a whole that uh, people generally care more about their the health of their dogs and, and their partners. And I think that gun dogs, if they're not right up there with the the group that cares the most you know if they're not the one then they're second or third i mean it's just For sure. you know, it, there's a lot of yeah. questions and a lot of misconceptions but uh one of the first things that we get from a lot of people especially on first time owners is i have this dog how do i take care of it the best way and so we're kind of here today on especially on part one to really talk about pretty much everything that we can fit into this one episode excellent yeah, so, that sounds great. There are a lot of questions. It's especially now with COVID, we've seen a lot of people get that dog or that second dog they've always wanted. And they've always had those questions like, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> yep. You know, the COVID puppy, the COVID right. puppy. Uh, so I guess go ahead and start off by introducing yourself. How did you end up in this world and, and become a vet and, and all that fun stuff? Yeah, happy to. Um, I, like most veterinarians, it's really all I've ever wanted to do. Ever since I was 12 years old, I've wanted to be a vet. Um, I tell people it's really more of a calling than a job. You hear that a lot from vets. They never really wanted to do anything else. Some people ask me, you ever want to be a human doctor? Nope. Not <laughs> even for one second. So loved animals, loved science. 
I grew up in upstate New York, uh, just north of Albany. I went to undergrad in one of the state schools out in Western New York near Rochester. Then I went to Cornell for veterinary school. And then I had enough of the cold weather. <laughs> the snow belt <laughs> was not calling me. So I left in mid nineties, moved down here to Maryland. And I've had a pretty diverse career actually as a veterinarian. What brought me to the area originally was working with horses. So I was a horse vet for a couple of years and switched to small animal and have had, had a very diverse career, uh, starting off as an associate veterinarian in a pretty large small animal practice. Um, in Montgomery County, Maryland, bought that practice. We actually saw a fair bit of uh, hunting dogs, bird dogs in that practice. Um, I started a mobile ultrasound practice and I'd always had a real interest in cardiology and emergency medicine. So actually for the last several years, I was an emergency vet at a big ER and specialty practice in Northern Virginia, in Leesburg, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, actually, that's where my career took an even more interesting turn. I got really frustrated with the lack of after-hours medical record access in our industry. And uh, so I decided to do something about it. I actually went back and got my MBA, went to business school, met my co-founder and started a software company called VitusVet. And we started off as an app that allowed pet owners to just access their complete medical record when they're traveling when they're uh, in an emergency. And I don't mean just vaccine dates and prescriptions. I mean like x-rays, lab work, detailed medical notes, the meat of the record, the kind of stuff. If you're in an emergency clinic, um, you know, in the middle of nowhere in hunting season and you have to go to an emergency clinic, what would you like that doctor to be able to know about your pet? And so that's what we did. So now I run that software company and I still do relief work as a veterinarian. And um, I actually, I was a retriever guy for most of my life. I probably had a, geez, 10, 12 golden retrievers over the years. I've had a black lab. And then I got a poodle pointer about nine years ago. And that's when I really got uh, heavily into bird hunting. I got the, the dog through my brother-in-law who actually had poodle pointers and um, we were initially attracted to the, you know, no shedding hypoallergenic um, aspect of them. And now we've got four of them and they're all laying here by my feet right now. They're quiet, but that could change at any minute. Um, I've also really gotten involved with NAVDA. I think uh, NAVDA is a fantastic organization. I've met a lot of just wonderful, wonderful people there. Um, fortunate to be a NAVDA apprentice judge. And candidly, I probably learned more about canine behavior through NAVDA and being an apprentice judge than I learned in 20 years as a veterinarian. It's especially for nerds like me, when you love dogs and love behavior and trying to figure out what's going on, it's just, uh, I'm getting literally goosebumps just talking about it. I just love being out there. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Gotcha. So, so you kind of, your career, like you said, it's kind of taken a whole bunch of different turns and, and real quick, I want you to, what's the name of that app with the software company that you said that you're working on now, because that's, that's really impressive. It can really help the, the traveling hunter out with traveling with their medical records. 
uh, and prevent them from doing what you hear a lot of and uh, people just, you know, creating these big manila folder yeah, trapper keeper right. tra- style travel stuff. Trapper uh, keeper. Nice. <laughs> I had one of those. I think I'm older than you and I definitely had trapper keepers. Yep. Um, yeah, for sure. It's called Vitus Vets, V-I-T-U-S, V-E-T. Okay. Um, actually, somewhat interesting name on how we uh, story on how we got the name of the company. As you can imagine, most of the URLs and websites that have pet or vet in it were long gone as of five <laughs> years ago. So we had to get a bit creative. So yeah. Saint Vitus is actually one of the other patron saints of animals. Okay. Everybody knows about Saint Francis of Assisi, but Saint Vitus is another one. So we named the company after that. Gotcha. Got you. Well, no, I mean, that that's great. I'm sure we're definitely going to talk about that a little bit more, especially, you know, may, maybe on uh, part two, a little bit more so yeah. than today. But but it also works with a lot of what we're going to talk about today, because what's the you know, we, we're going to jump in right where everybody really starts at. Usually when they get a puppy, what's the first thing they have to figure out is the vaccine shots, right? And and the vaccine schedules, because all that, it's important to make sure that you're getting what you need at the right time, at the right age, and uh, not really exposing your dog to different stuff, depending on which level of vaccinations they're in. So mm-hmm. go ahead and let's you know pretend like I'm a brand new owner. I got my first dog here, eight weeks old. Yep. What is the appropriate way to look at these vaccines, your puppy shots, and what would you advise me on? Well, the first thing I'd say is a, a sort of a, a catch-all statement is this varies a lot depending on where you are in the country. So for sure, whatever your veterinarian recommends, um, I would follow those recommendations. But in general, the way I like to think about uh, vaccine schedules is there's sort of Uh, a couple of vaccines that are called core vaccines, which means basically no matter where you live or what your dog does from a hunting dog to a little Yorkie, these core vaccines are needed by every dog. And those really are your distemper vaccine and your rabies vaccine. Okay. And when I say distemper vaccine, it's actually a multivalent vaccine. Distemper is one of the components, but if you look at your receipt, they're usually called DHLPP. So there's actually, or DHPP, there's, it protects against multiple different viruses and bacteria, although it's called the, just the distemper vaccine. Gotcha. So the core vaccines, um, I would increasingly include Kennelkoff as part of the core vaccine, especially, again, I'll, I'll speak today as if, uh, you know, we're talking about bird dogs that are out there and seeing other dogs either hunting or testing or training. So I would yeah. include Kennelkoff, which is called Bordetella. That's the, the bacterial name. It's a bacterial upper respiratory infection. Um, so that's kennel cough. Non-core vaccines would be things like uh, influenza. There is a Giardia vaccine, a Lyme vaccine. Um, we'll talk a little bit maybe about snake bite or uh, vaccines. Yeah. That's another one that it's optional. If, for example, you live in the high plains where there's no ticks, you probably don't need a Lyme disease vaccine. Right. If you live in an area with a lot of rattlesnakes, you should definitely have the uh, the snake vaccine for sure. Yeah. Um, here in the Mid Atlantic, Lyme disease is rampant, so I really I recommend that vaccine. And the, you know, a lot of these vaccines have changed dramatically just in the last five years. I mean, there's there's so much better immunizations, much less likely to to cause reactions. Um, so. 
I would follow your veterinarian's recommendations. As far as the schedule, you show up at eight weeks of age. Your uh, breeder said, go take your dog, the pup to the vet, get them checked out. Typically, what we're going to recommend is that we see you three times at eight weeks, 12 weeks, and 16 weeks. Okay. Um, at the first visit, we're going to do the exam. Um, and I don't want to short cycle or short focus on the exam uh, on the exam either that's really really valuable a lot of us think they need their shots and that's true especially for puppies but the physical exam is really really important especially as your pet gets a little bit older so it's not just about i need to go in and get shots um what you really need to go in especially as they get older is for a physical exam and see if anything's changed does it look like your dog may be getting earlier uh, evidence of arthritis? Or uh, is there any weight loss or weight gain? Do they have a heart murmur? Let's do some screening blood work as they get older. So the physical exam is a big part of all veterinary care. Um, so you get the exam, get your vaccines. Typically, it'll be your first distemper vaccine at eight weeks of age. Um, we'll come back at 12 weeks of age, uh, get a second distemper booster. That's very often when you'll get a a kennel cough vaccine. I would counsel your your listeners, don't try and write all this down. Again, this is what <laughs> your vet's for. Just show up at eight weeks, do what they tell you to do. And very often what we, especially if you're going to do some of the optional vaccines, the non-core vaccines, like um, I'll give you a great example of one that I strongly recommend as well, the influenza vaccine. Canine I was going to ask about that, the yeah. canine influenza. I mean, what is different in the canine influenza than our influenza shot? Like, I, I, I don't think I've even recalled a, an influenza shot uh, that, you know, that I can remember. I may just be misremembering, but. For, for you yourself or. As, for, yeah, the they are now. We yeah. had, yeah, we had an outbreak of them a couple of years ago. They flare up periodically. I've actually seen pets with uh, dogs with canine influenza. It's terrible. It very often uh, settles into pneumonia, can be fatal. So again, if your dog's not traveling, many dogs don't necessarily need it for a hunting dog or uh, a dog that's out there traveling and seeing other dogs, I recommend it. If, if you travel enough to get a kennel cough vaccine, you should have the influenza vaccine. Kennel cough gotcha. is a bacteria, influenza is a virus. Um, a lot of boarding facilities require them anyway. So I do recommend that, uh, again, for our kind of dogs, you should probably have it. So I hope they it, never do get it because it's it, bad if they do, just like humans. Yeah, I was about to say, so is it kind of like a, a certain time of year is more prone to to see it pop up kind of like in us? And then is this kind of a strain that kind of jumped from us to them? Or is it a completely different thing, just similar? Name? Completely different. Yeah, great okay. question. Yeah, it's called the canine influenza virus. It's it's structurally different. Equine, there's an equine influenza virus. They're not, you can't get canine influenza. It doesn't affect people or vice versa. It's its own influenza. Uh, there's many, many influenza viruses, dozens, maybe even a hundred or so Wow, uh, that affect okay. different species. Um, and canine right. influenza is one of them. So, so if, the best thing uh, is to get vaccinated on it. And don't don't think you can solve it by putting some theraflu in the dog bowl or something. Right? I know, no, you shouldn't. It's a good <laughs> vaccine, and if you're out and around, um, especially because it's if they get it, it's a lot worse than kennel cough. Um, so it's we don't 
there's periodic outbreaks throughout the country here and there. We had one in the mid Atlantic a few years ago and it was pretty bad. So I would, uh, I, I'm a big fan of that vaccine. Gotcha. Typically so, rabies vaccine is given at 16 weeks of age. Yeah. And, um, so what, at what point, you know, a lot of people, I, I know that, uh, I've been rec or advised by my vet in the past to not necessarily take your dog out to public places like pet smart, you know, don't go to the store where there's a lot of dogs for fear of, mm -hmm. you know, catching something from them. At what point do you feel comfortable as a vet advising somebody, uh, on the, based on their immunization schedule when they can start getting out and being exposed more to the elements or other dogs or, so, you know, environments such as that. The big thing we're concerned about in cases like that is, is primarily kennel cough. So I would tell people we, at our practice, we would give kennel cough as part of the 12 week visit. So I would say, yeah. You know, don't see any other dogs until, you know, maybe five days after your 12 week puppy visit. Yeah. Um, and then you're fairly safe. Um, again, it really is something that they'd have to kind of come pretty close to one another. And even even a fully vaccinated dog, if you take your pet to PetSmart or something like that, you know, it's probably not the greatest idea to have them touch noses with some other dog. You have no idea yeah. what their vaccine history is. You have no idea if they're going to be dog aggressive and so forth. That's another thing I've seen where most pet owners don't really have a great idea, especially non people like you said, us, where we're working every day with these guys. We have a pretty good idea of their personalities. Most pet owners do not. I no, can't tell absolutely. you how many times I've seen dog fights where people are surprised. Oh my gosh, he's never done this before. <laughs> but if you yeah. knew how to, if you understood canine behavior, uh, you know, he had all the warning signs all Absolutely. along. You just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Absolutely. So, um, so I, I want to get into some of the more optional vaccines that, that you had yeah. previously mentioned. And I know that there's some more, but, you know, but we, we got to mention at this puppy level, you know, you, you've mentioned kennel cough a couple of times. Really, the only other thing that I hear a lot of uh, health issues when they're young and uh at the puppy level is parvo. Uh, mm. What what steps do people need to take to avoid parvo? What is parvo, and is it something that you know we need to keep in mind with this vaccination schedule? Does it fall in line with that, or is it kind of a separate thing on its own? It's it's part of the distemper vaccine. So uh, the distemper vaccine, uh, I mentioned the DHPP parvo virus is one of those P's. Okay. So if they come in for their vaccine schedule. Um, the vaccine is highly effective. Parvovirus is a really bad viral disease of dogs. Um, it, it really exploded on the scene in the 70s and caused the death of millions and millions of dogs. Thankfully, a, a vaccine was developed. It's a highly effective vaccine. The cases we see in Parvo are the younger pups that either haven't had a vaccine yet. It's also highly contagious and infectious. So... Um, another reason to just make sure your pet your puppies get vaccinated and to keep them away from other uh, dogs until they've had at least that second round of vaccines. So, because gotcha. it's gotcha. bad. Yeah, it's a very bad disease. It's yeah. often fatal and expensive to fix, even if it's not fatal. Gotcha. Uh, so I want to go down some of these optional va vaccines one, uh, one at a time, kind of explain the benefits, pros and cons, maybe who should worry about it, who shouldn't, uh, 
one of the first things that pops up, at least in, in my area, a little bit more often than than other people that I talk to, uh, leptocirrhosis. Lepto, yes. Uh, that's a bacterial infection. Yeah. Yeah, it used to be um, leptospirosis is actually uh, the most the most common what we call zoonotic disease in the world. And what that means is a disease that humans can catch from animals. In other countries, it's called moon blindness. It's a terrible disease outside the United States in human beings. Okay. It used to be for many years, it was primarily a disease of cattle and horses. And we didn't see it that much in dogs. But over the last few years, we've started to see more and more of it. It's a okay. bacterial disease. It's a kind of a bacteria called a spirochete. Um, and they're really tough, tough uh, little organisms. The vaccine is highly effective. The, the reason that dogs like ours should get the lepto vaccine is because the bacteria is usually found in like water. So whether it's pond water, puddles, uh, even like, like car uh, ruts that attract water, if uh, especially if it's near a farm and there's cattle urine and the cattle's infected, the urine makes it into the local water. Dog drinks it. Dog gets leptospirosis. It can cause kidney failure, and it's a it's a terrible disease that's for the most part preventable. Yeah. So uh, the uh, the lepto is actually one of my main stories that I tell people when I tell everybody the importance of finding a vet that you really see eye to eye with and kind of understands the wor world that you're going to be in. Because one mm -hmm. of the first vets that I was dealing with when I got into this world, they he just came into the off or the little waiting room and, and said, you know, do you want to get the lepto shot? And at the time, I didn't know what the lepto shot was. And his only response, he just kept repeating himself was, well, if you're near the woods and there's puddles in the woods around raccoon may have pissed in the puddle and so you need to get the <laughs> lepto shot and I, I had no idea what he was talking about raccoons and peeing in puddles and and so <laughs> it's like crazy. ever since then it's just like it, it took me two or three vets but i finally found a vet uh that that i see eye to eye with and he he enjoys hunting dogs and he you know first time i and i'm like what is this lepto deal because all i've heard is raccoons peeing in puddles and he just kind of laughed and explained it very similar to what what you said because that's clearly what it is but but you know it kind of goes to show that if you're if you're dealing with you know primarily pet owner vets they may not understand what they're trying to advise you that you need to get with your dog right yeah that's exactly right and left is a good example especially because over the last few years it has been on the rise again and um for active outdoor dogs especially if your dog's in water like if you're hunting or waterfall hunting or mm -hmm. even if you're just crashing around the woods yesterday when I was out training and I was uh, doing a, a duck drag for somebody and I dragged that duck into the woods and left him there. And then I uh, looked up and there was this little swamp right there and you couldn't even see it from where I started, but sure enough, there it was. And it's the kind of place where if your dog was crashing around in that, you know, and if there was an infected animal in the area, they can definitely get it. So gotcha. um, an important disease. All right. Well, so that, that one, especially with us and, and doing the versatile hunting dog and, and just having dogs out, that's that's one that's uh, recommended to get. Another one, being, just being mm -hmm. outdoors and, you know, an issue that we, we just previously covered on another episode was uh, the importance of a good Lyme disease uh, protocol or prevention. So 
we didn't touch on anything because I told him that, you know, me and you were going to be talking about vaccines. Lyme disease vaccine. I've heard that it works great. I've heard that it doesn't work. Don't waste your money. What is the Lyme disease vaccine? And is it recommended for everybody that's going out in the woods with their dogs? Uh, Depending on where you are in the country, um, again, if if you live in an area where there really isn't Lyme disease, and especially in very dry areas, um, you know, places at elevation, you know, I'm thinking high desert, I don't think there's much Lyme disease, you know, in the desert southwest or in uh, uh, real elevation. So this would be an area where if your vet recommends it, and you tell them, hey, this is going to be a bird dog, and we're going to be out there, if your vet recommends it, then I would do it. Lyme disease vaccine, if you go back 10, 15 years ago, there there weren't very many good Lyme vaccines. There have been tremendous advances in the not only the quality of the vaccine, but decreasing the incidence of side effects. That was another problem we had with old school Lyme vaccines is you give the shot a couple hours later, you get a call from the owner and he's having a vaccine reaction. Mm. Thankfully, these vaccine reactions weren't bad, but they were sore and uncomfortable. Maybe they'd have a fever like you might have after a flu shot or after a COVID vaccine. Yeah. But those have really gone away. The vaccines have gotten a lot purer and they're much better at triggering the immunological protection against the things that you really need to prevent disease. So that's a lot of words to say, yeah, I would recommend it where we are here in Maryland, the mid Atlantic area, um, for sure. You should get it. So with the lepto vaccine and the Lyme disease vaccine, we, I guess we should mention, is this an annual vaccine or is this kind of a a one and done or last for three or four years? You know what, how long do these vaccines? No, they're annual. Okay. Yeah. They usually have to get, you get a vaccine and then you get it boosted and then it's annual thereafter. Same with influenza. Different vaccines have different protocols. Yeah. Some of it even varies depending on which vaccine manufacturer your vet uses. Yeah. So there are differences between Zoetis vaccines and, you know, maybe a, uh, a Bering or Engelheim, for example. So whatever your vet's recommendation is, follow that. Roger that. Um, yeah. Okay, so move on to this is another one that's kind of you hear everybody saying, get it don't get it depends on your area because it's very specific to a species the snake vaccine yeah how how is that and you know, i'll tell you so from my understanding it's really only a vaccine based off of one species of rattlesnake uh but there is no scientific evidence that says it does not help when it comes to immunization against other venomous snakes is that true what's your take on it Yeah, it's a good vaccine against most pit vipers, right? Rattlesnakes are pit vipers, so are copperheads, but things like coral snakes are not. So it wouldn't really help against that, but it does help against most pit vipers. And listen, this is a good example of it's it's way better than nothing. I've treated, I don't know how many snake bite envenomations, rattlesnakes, copperheads, so forth, uh, and they're bad. Um, So... Given how valuable your dog is, given that they're a member of the family, if you're out there and in rattlesnake country, I would recommend the vaccine. I'd also recommend uh, doing a snake bite prevention uh, session. Uh, 
NAVDA runs them periodically. Other groups will run them where you can actually kind of sneak proof your dog. In fact, I think I was just talking to someone recently who came down to North Carolina and did one um, in the area, and it was really well run. Uh, and so you can train your dogs to uh, kind of avoid them worth your time. Okay. And and for those people that are, are listening to this, and like, I want to hear what to do with my snake in the field after they get bit. Don't worry. That's coming up on part two. So, so stay tuned go. for yep. that. Uh, so you should say, go ahead and get them. It protects you against all pit vipers, not coral snakes, but good news. Coral snakes are a little bit more rare. And from my understanding, yep. uh, their fangs are a little different than the pit vipers. They're a little bit harder to get sink their, sink their fangs into the dogs as well as humans. But when they do get into you, uh, good luck. So <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Totally uh, different type of venom. Mm-hmm. Yep. So any other vaccines that you would say that we need to have on our radar and, or plan for either at the puppy level or annual basis, uh, anything that we missed out on, on that? No, I think that's pretty good. Okay. Yeah. So let's go ahead and move on into the, the, what we call like the seasonal concerns, because what I, I'm worried about in the month of July is completely different than what I'm worried about in the month of January, January, right? Mm-hmm. There's heat injuries, yep. cold injuries, different yep. stuff based on different times of year. Uh, let's start right now. It's, it's June when this comes out, heat injuries, what, yeah. you know, we, we can kind of go a million different directions on this. What are, what is the most common heat injury issue? And let's just talk about prevention. You know, it's a lot of this should prevention. be kind of common sense stuff, but you know, let's, let's just jump on into it. Yeah, it's not though. I mean, for sure. The one thing that heat injury that's going to potentially kill your dog is heat stroke. Mm-hmm. Also a terrible disease that very often by the time you notice that they're showing signs, you're really far behind the eight ball. So you want to really prevent this where possible. And again, pets, dogs, specifically dogs don't really perspire. It's not technically true because their foot pads will sweat a little bit, but the bottom line is they are not very efficient at getting rid of heat out of their body. Um, they could, their primary heat diffusion mechanism is panting, which isn't that effective. Yeah. So you really want to try and prevent this train early in the morning. Um, if you're out there and it's hot, try and avoid the, the hottest parts of the day. Um, water, the, the kiddie pools, great away of, especially if you're training in the summertime, just try and keep them cool. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and ask you the question. Cause you get a lot of people that say, well, in the summertime, you know, I, I'm just going to go do water work. Is it true that dogs can actually overheat quicker in the water in the hottest time of the day than out of the water. Yeah, water, they can still get heat stroke uh, in the water. It's not that common. By far and away, most of the instances are not in water. But you can't, being in water is not a license to just go and work them for an hour because they will still overheat even in water, especially depending on what the water temperature is. That's probably the biggest variable. If the water you know, temperature is 50 degrees out. That's a little bit different than if it's 75 and you're talking about a fairly shallow pond or lake where the water temperature can get warm. They'll absolutely overheat. 
and, and so, the, way, the way it was kind of explained to me at one point, I can't remember who explained it to me, was look at it as like, you know, dogs cool off. Like you said, they try and pant, but it's really kind of evaporation uh, through their fur, fur. Any moisture is evaporating off of them. And so if you go, if they go into the pond or water, it's kind of like right. they they just get a blanket thrown over the top of them. And, right. they, and they don't, yeah. they, they're not cooling off until they come out of that water and the water starts evaporating. So if the dog is just swimming exactly right. out in the pond, then they're just going to overheat. So if you go out there and it's three o'clock, you know, in the middle of July or August or something, and you're like, I'm just going to do a 20 minute duck search because it's hot as blazes out here. Your dog can still overheat even though they're in the water. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The evaporative cooling is really where uh, most of the cooling occurs. So yeah, be careful in the water too. It's not a blanket statement to to just be able to do whatever you want just because you're in the water. But you know, when, uh, the key areas of the body to cool down when you're trying to prevent this are really the the undercarriage, if you will. So whether it's you stop in a creek or if there's a kiddie pool at a training day or if you're out there hunting and it's hot, focus on wetting down the underside of their body, especially their groin and their underarm, the uh, axillary area. That's where these big blood vessels are where if you cool that area down, they can bleed that heat a lot more effectively. Gotcha. I've heard some people say that if you, if you wet them down on the top of the body, that actually magnifies the rays of the sun. I don't think that's true. Um, the way I look at, at squirting down the top of the body is it's just not that effective. You know, take the time, squat down and, you know, squirt underneath up into their groin. Their ears are also a good area, their foot pads. So I don't think that uh, wetting the top of the body hurts them. It's just not helping them as much as some other areas of the body. Gotcha. Well, let, let's stick with this time of year that we're talking about, July, August time frame, and, and especially water work, uh, because a lot of people, and depending on your area, they may not even have the option to do water work based on the different types of stuff growing in that water. You already mentioned lepto yeah. in one area earlier on, but really more so people are going to think first and foremost, blue-green algae. Mm, yeah let's talk about what is blue green algae how do we identify it and really is the best solution just to if better safe than sorry if you see anything funky in the water stay out of it yeah the short answer is yeah if you see anything funky i'd stay away from it because blue green algae intoxication is really really bad um so blue green algae uh, is a term for cyanobacter uh it's uh and it's really this thin film of either a green or a blue algae that we commonly see primarily in the summertime as uh, heat warms up the water and these bacteria can grow. Um, the challenge with this with dogs is that the intoxication happens within an hour and really it happens very quickly and it can cause really either one of two sort of symptoms depending on which toxin they get. It can either cause like a liver failure problem um, or it can cause more of a neurological type uh, manifestation where uh, the neurological form, you'll often see kind of a muscle tremors, excessive drooling, um, tearing from the eyes. Uh, and, this, and this can progress to paralysis and death very quickly. In fact, 
this affect large animals too, where sometimes you'll see like cattle that are dead right at the side of the water. It hits them that fast. Mm. The liver toxin is a little bit better. The challenge again is, but by the time you start to see those symptoms of the vomiting, diarrhea, maybe tarry stool, you're, they're pretty sick. So this, unfortunately, there's no antidote other than supportive care. Um, so this disease, it's usually fatal. So I would say if there's a doubt, there is no doubt and just avoid it. So you know, with, with there's this- tests for it that you can do like a local area. You can take a sample and they, and send it out to your state uh, laboratory for yeah. testing. But yeah. So you know, we, it's, we it's had, a bad deal. We actually had to do that. Uh, I think it was two seasons ago. We we drove down mm-hmm. to do some duck search training for an upcoming utility test. So this was probably end of August, early September, and uh, we got out there, and it was just some funky looking algae. And uh, we ended up doing a water sample as well as uh, actual like pulled some of the algae out and put it in the bottle to, to send off to the lab and and it came back negative but you know that that is something that especially with the utility test coming up we had to make sure that the water was good to go before the test right oh yeah uh so we we're good to go better but, safe than sorry yeah, yeah but you know we we drove an app you can't look. tell looking at it that's the thing you can't tell looking at it oh that's blue green versus yeah. not out you're it, fine it was just if you guess wrong yeah yeah I mean, if you it, guess wrong your dog's dead, you yeah, know, so exactly. And so, I mean, we, we drove, uh, I don't know, it was about an hour and a half to go do some duck search. And there's three or four of us. And it's just like every, every one of us, you know, you drive that far, you want to get the training in, but at the same time, it's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's not, it's not worth killing our dogs over and, you know, let, let's yeah. figure this out. But what I wanted to ask you is you can't always tell if the algae is technically blue green algae or not, but can you always see the algae so is there like an algae bloom that maybe you can't see it's underneath the surface or something that maybe uh you know if you walk into a pond that's a great question yeah yeah i don't think so okay um but i would i I would look that one up i'm not a, a toxicologist that's uh that's a great question i've actually never heard before my experience has always been you would see it okay but what you're asking is could it be submerged and uh I would think it's really unlikely, but I am open to be proven wrong there. So that's gotcha. yeah, that's uh, something we could research. So, is there anything else during the summer time frame that we need to worry about? Like, is there another algae bloom or anything in the fields or or anything specific that you can think of that's kind of during the, the the heated months that we should be aware of as dog owners and trainers? Porcupines. <laughs> you know, the grass ons, all that kind of stuff that, that comes out. Grass ons. Let's, yeah. let's talk about They're that nasty. real quick because that's that's a good one that that it's just man, it I I hate that. Like that scares me more than a porcupine, really, because it's like it's a, it's the silent killer really, right? Yeah. Like, you, you know when uh, you know when your dogs run up on a porcupine, you don't know <laughs> if they have a grass on. Yeah, and they're all very similar in many ways. You know, pointed, barred ends, prone to migration. Very often you don't, uh, especially with, uh, you may think you get all the porcupine quills, but a week or so later, you know, you're petting (laughs) them on their chest and you get poked like, oh my gosh, what's that? And here comes a porcupine quill. They can migrate through the chest. So um, porcupines are another thing that you can train. If you live in an area like where we are here in Maryland, we don't see them that much. You go an hour north into Pennsylvania, they're all over the place. Yeah. Where I grew up in upstate New York, rampant. 
They always seem to come in to the vet on a Friday afternoon too. Always. And you're like, oh, here comes here comes a quill dog. There go my next three hours. <laughs> well, so, it's like I tell everybody, you can't schedule an emergency, right? <laughs> yeah, right. You, you can't be like, all right, yeah. next Thursday, I'm going to be training my dog. So uh, Thursday afternoon, put me on the books. All right. Now it's an emergency is an emergency. And when are we training yeah. our dogs? It's around work schedules. So usually we're off work. It's on the weekends. So it's never going to happen on a Tuesday at noon to where you yep. need to go into a vet. And that's something, if they get a mouthful of quills, like if you're in the middle of nowhere hunting and you have to restrain them and um, pull them all, don't get bit, uh, using a dowel to kind of keep their, to prop their mouth open can be helpful. But honestly, this is something where if you're near a vet, go to the vet, spend the money, have them sedated, anesthetized, and have all these pulled out, especially, I'm not talking about if they have 20 but I've seen dogs with 500 of them. Oh yeah. Um, and you may make your dog head shy for the rest of his life. If you force them to just sit there and you pull these quills, another, uh, wives tale I'll debunk right now is snipping the tip off before you pull it. Don't waste your time. You don't need to do that. Uh, just grab it as close to the base, carry some needle nose pliers. You know, every first aid kit should have some, and, uh, heaven forbid you run into them. But if you're out there enough and you're hunting in areas where they have them, you know, like if you're a grouse hunter, where grouse live, there's usually porcupine oh, too. Yeah. So absolutely. Uh, so the grass hawns. What what's the yeah. best way to do this? I mean, is you, we can't stay out of the fields. We have to train these no. dogs. So you have to go. Is it really just a matter of pay attention, try and see what's actually seeding and blooming out there, and do a good tailgate check when you get back to the truck? Is that really the only thing that we can? It do? really is. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else you can do. A tailgate check that you mentioned is so important. Um, but when you come back in, really check your dog over thoroughly in between the toes. Check, you know, that's really, really important, yeah. especially if you're out there and uh, you're good, you're in Kansas for five days of hunting and you need that dog to hold up. It's very much worth uh, the investment of checking them out afterwards. For sure. And we'll go into more detail on that on the next episode as well. Uh, so cold injuries, you know, uh, what are we just talking hypothermia? What else is there? You know, what, what are we talking? Yeah, probably, probably the, I would say the biggest thing is, um, just foot injuries from running around in the snow or the ice. I think if you can get your dog, there's, I've talked to, to folks that, um, have had really good luck with, um, with a particular type with booties, if you can get your dog to get used to them. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of them out there. I've heard a, a couple people recommend, um, mountain Ridge, actually they, they, their booties, they're, they're a sled dog company primarily. So you can imagine yeah. those guys know how to make a booty for a dog. Yeah. I've heard, uh, those being a really good brand. I also know a couple people, um, that will use a spray called tough foot. You ever heard of that stuff before? Yeah. Um, it's very similar. So in the past, uh, when, uh, Lucy, I, I, my girls blew out some pads a couple years ago when we were roading and I got the, uh, I can't remember the name of it. It was very similar to what you're talking about. It's like that blue stuff that you put on the pads and it just kind of 
kind of just toughens them up a little bit. It does. Like calluses them up. And uh, I was hesitant at first. I'm like, you know, to me, like it'll callus over if you're conditioning properly enough anyway. But uh, I put them on and it's just like, you know, it it was kind of like in a week's time, you could just kind of feel the difference in their pads is a little bit uh, just tougher, right? A little bit more sandpaper. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, Mark Whalen was telling me about this stuff, and he uses it and really likes it. You have to kind of spray, start spraying a couple of weeks ahead of time. But as you say, it just really toughens their pads. So, again, if you're going out west and you've got all this time and money and vacation hours invested in this, mm-hmm. you know, this is one of those things to think about. What should I start doing two weeks ahead of time? Toughening yes. up their feet, yep. for sure. Uh, no foot, no dog. Another one on uh, feet is musher secret. You know, if you're running in a lot of snow, mm. especially that slush stuff that gets in between the pads, that musher yep. secret k- keeps that snow and ice ball from developing in between the pads. I know a lot of people have had a lot of good se- success oh, cool. with that. And then uh, bag bomb. A lot of people that use that. That stuff's great. Yeah, they use yeah. that, obviously, for... for <laughs> the dog's bag <laughs> but uh mm-hmm. I've, I've heard a lot of people having good success with actually applying that on the dog's feet as well after a long yep. day of hunt so uh the, there's a few yeah. few products out there but you know again we're, we're going to talk about this here in a second you know really with the feet the best the best prescription and prevention for that is a, a good pro- conditioning program right yeah. um yeah. But one thing that, you know, we can't really condition for is just the dog getting too cold, too wet. You know, it, duck hunting comes to mind more often than this or more often than upland. But a lot of people, it seems to think that, you know, they, they'll go put a $60, $70 vest on their dog and think their dog can't get too cold and it can't get hypothermia. Um, talk to us about hypothermia. What are the signs? And is there a, a magic number on the temperature on that thermometer that maybe we should keep our dogs inside? Uh, you know, the, as, a, as a species, dogs are fairly resistant to hypothermia, mm-hmm. um, but they get colder a lot more than we probably think they do. Honestly, one of the things that's probably the best for this, if you, if you have a blanket in your crate, straw works really, really good to keep them warm. Probably one of the biggest ways if you're, if you're putting your dog back after hunting and taking another one out, just keep the wind off them. That's a really important part of preventing this for sure. Um, you know, I often, I'm kind of, uh, if they're really, if it's really cold out and I've been out with uh, my dogs, I'll start up the truck and, and put them in the cab for a while or, or drive home with them like that too. They can probably take it colder than I think they can. Uh, external temperature, you know, once it starts getting down below 20 or certainly below 10, you got to start thinking, hmm, you know, 10 degrees Fahrenheit, this is 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Like, you know, is this really a good idea? How much are we going to achieve? Are they going to, what else is going to happen when they're inspiring air that's that cold? Is it going to cause some bronchospasms problem in their lungs and breathing? Um, I don't do an awful lot of super cold, uh, area hunting. And so I would defer to folks that, you know, live and hunt in Northern Minnesota, uh, as far as like, you know, what, what their experience has been. Um, but I think, I don't know that certainly hyperthermia and heat stroke is a much bigger deal than hypothermia. 
So if you think your dog is cold, he or she probably is. So a big blanket, um, putting them in your truck and run the heater for a while, straw, like I said, those are all things that keep the wind off them. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, like we just talked about, you know, conditioning prevents a lot of stuff. You know, that can help with everything from working in the heat. It can help with cold injuries as far as foot issues and, and so on and so forth. But just a better conditioned dog is just a healthier dog and a happier dog all around. So, you know, in your experience, what's the best types of conditioning for the dogs? Is it a mixture of everything or is like running better than swimming or is swimming better because it's less impact kind of like us, you know, should we strap some weights to them, stretch them out? You know, I've heard some crazy, crazy things people do with these dogs, but like what, what, what do you suggest? What's the best conditioning program for a dog on, on the average basis? I think running them is probably the best, but I will tell you that swimming is a fantastic exercise not just for people, but for dogs too. So it's a great way to mix up your training regimen. Um, I will often take a kayak and, and go to a local state park and just, uh, you know, let my dog swim for 45 minutes, especially earlier in the year or later in the year when the water's not that warm yet, being cognizant of, like we talked about, they can overheat doing that. But, you know, a, a swim of five or 10 minutes is just, like running them for five or 10 minutes. This is not going to do that much. Yeah. So I use swimming a lot, especially when I've been training for the, the invitational as a way to just kind of mix up the training, give them a little bit more of different type of fitness. Um, but finding areas, I think you've, you get to be pretty good at finding parks or schools or other areas where you can, if you're, I'm not blessed to have uh, acreage at my house where I can just let the dogs out the backyard and significantly condition them. Yeah. So um, finding areas where they can run around. Uh, also, when I was one tip that I would share for training for hot water or for uh, hot weather hunting, whether it's that invitational or uh, you know sharp tail hunting in Nebraska, for example, in late September, early October, it could be upper 70s and the 80s there. So one way to, to try and pro acclimate your dog to heat uh, is condition them in the heat, but using water uh, every 10, 15 minutes to kind of cool them down. So what I would do is I found fields that it would have a creek and I would go and I would run them when it was, you know, in the 90s, get them used to that. And then every 10 minutes, I'd take them to the creek and cool them down. Yeah then back out and run them, then back to the creek. Yep. Um, and it pays dividends. Uh, when I ran the Invitational last time, it was hot. Upper 80s in Ohio, and we ran last in the day. And um, it paid off. She did pretty well, and I think our conditioning routine was a big part of that. But there's no way to avoid, if you want them to be used to, to hunting in the heat, you got to run them in the heat. Mm -hmm. But you got to be smart about it. Absolutely. You know? There's no other way to, to, you can't run them when it's 60 degrees out early on in the day and then expect them to show up uh, for that shark tail hunt. They're just not going to be used to it. So right. um, conditioning for heat is just a part of like conditioning your muscles. You just got to get out there and do it. Well, and so being smart about this, how can the average person 
that, you know, we say we don't have your background, we don't have your knowledge, you know, we can look up breed standards on height and weight and all that stuff, but how do we as owners really know the right balance for our dogs that they're maintaining the right weight that their joints are healthy you know it's i mean you have a lot of people that say you know don't don't run a puppy for longer than five minutes until they're x months old until their joint plates grow together you know how do how do we as just everyday average people who have a passion for these dogs know how Mm -hmm. to balance this out the correct way yeah well uh those are great questions. Let me try and take them one by one. If I forget one, remind me. <laughs> a good way of knowing if your dog is too thin or overweight is you ought to be able to feel their ribs, but not see them, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can see your dog's ribs, that probably means they're a little thin. Uh, but if, on the other hand, if you can't even feel your dog's ribs, that probably means they're overweight. Quick and dirty test. I know there are some dogs out there that are so high energy. It's really tough to keep weight on them. I get it. Sled dogs run into the same problems. High protein foods, high quality foods are really the solution to that. Supplementing them with fat dogs metabolize fat very well. Actually, that's one of the secrets for the sled dog folks is uh, when they're running the Iditarod, you know, what they're feeding them is almost like butter. Yeah, Uh, They're used to it. That's the key, but that's the only way that they can metabolize to get that kind of caloric intake in an energy-dense format. They're not actually that good at metabolizing carbohydrates. So fats are a really good source, protein too. So that's a kind of a, the rib test is a quick and dirty way of knowing whether your dog's overweight or not. Real quick on that rib, what would you say to the owner? I mean, you have a poodle pointer. We see all kind of these woolly mammoth uh, looking griffs and poodle pointers. What do you do with the, the breed of dog that maybe sometimes you can't really see their ribs even when they are too skinny? Yeah, wet them down. You'd be surprised some of these woolly mammoths, you wet them down, they look like uh, drowned rats, and then the, the ribs <laughs> pop right out. You know, like, oh, wow, you're a lot thinner than I thought you were. <laughs> yeah. It just uh, packs some more weight on you. Um, so that's a good one as far as weight is concerned. Um, what was the other question? You asked me a couple of questions. Uh, really there. just the balance of how, you know, overtraining. Oh, yeah, when to run them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I usually... I don't have a problem with people going out and doing a, a half an hour hunt with their young dog. Again, especially assuming the temperature is okay. Yeah. So let's not talk about heat stress right now. If you're just talking about, you know, what's too much exercise, um, a short session with puppies is fine. Um, really I would use a year of age for most of our breeds of dogs. That's about when their joint plates will close. Some of them maybe a little bit later than that. The problem you run into is running around in the woods and so forth. That's not going to be nearly as likely to be a problem as the repetitive pounding of jogging or running. Yeah. That's a different story. That I would not do. I, mean, I don't really do that at all. One of my early trainers said that, um, you know, you can't really get your dog tired or get, get them physically fit by jogging next to you. You just... You can't run fast enough. They need to be off the leash yes. and running. I'm glad you said that because um, I, I think yeah. I think that's important for a lot of people to notice. These dogs are not made to dr- jog at a slow pace. No. Their, their joints are no. made for running. And so, like, 
I, I'm a fan of roading if you're you can safely get up to the speed to where that dog is actually running. But from my understanding, talking to to vets and and contacts like you, is if you're going out there jogging a few miles and you just have your dog at heel on a leash, it's getting some exercise, but. From my understanding, I've been told that that's actually worse for their joints in a, uh, in a lot of ways yeah. because they're just not built for that long ex- just uh, exertion of energy and that pounding for three or four miles at a time that they're actually having to kind of restrain themselves. And it's kind of like us. If you're limping on one foot and you're over uh, compensating with the other one, you're going to end up hurting the other one, right? And so it – Am I biomechanic? Yeah, biomechanically, running is repetitive injury on the same small areas of cartilage in your joints, time and time again. Compare that to running and playing and hunting. You're out in the field. Not only is the ground softer, but you're. It's not just bang, bang, bang in the same area ten thousand times. Yes. So it's really a lot easier on their joints. Not only because the substrate is softer, but because you are stressing different parts of the joint. And again, you're not going to see a difference in a year, but in 10 years you would. That's when the stuff starts adding up. Gotcha. Um, Is it it different for, say, if a dog is pulling kind of a resistance training? You know, a lot of people, they do do the the roading to where the dog has a harness and it's pulling a bike or pulling a sled or some, some kind of hookup, just like the sled dogs you were talking about is them jogging for longer periods of time, pulling something. Is that healthier than just free jogging right next to you? I think, I mean, if you're, if you look at a video clip of what you're doing, and it looks like the same thing. If you fast forwarded it or slowed it down, it looked like it basically the same thing. They're just in this repetitive motion, whether they're pulling a sled or not. Still, to me, it's repetitive injury. So if you're pulling that over uneven ground and up and down hills and around corners and it's not on pavement, that's, a, that's, that's okay. But really uh, going up and down, whether they're pulling something or not, it's more about the nature of the uh, the impact on the joints than whether or not they're dragging something. Gotcha. Snow is easier than hard ground, so again, it's, it's uh, it depends on what you're doing. Gotcha. Makes sense. So um, I'm just going to go ahead and jump on into the last thing we're going to talk about today. There's a lot of uh, misconceptions, myths misunderstandings he said she said type of stuff on this so we're, we're gonna really kind of piss a lot of people off one way or the other i'm i'm assuming uh spay and neutering <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> when, yeah when do we do it why do we do it what are some of the actual true results of spay or neutering and what are some of the myths and misconceptions well, that's actually a good segue from uh, your, the talk about the orthopedic injuries, because one of the things that does seem to be on the rise in uh, the canine community is the ruptured cruciate ligaments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, ACL, if you will. There's some really interesting data that's coming out now that's, um, that makes us wonder if the rise in the incidence of cruciate injuries Certainly, there's probably a genetic component to it, but could it also be 
that the early age spay and neuter has created a problem with that. Uh, when I went to vet school and really for the first 15 years of my career, we were always spay and neuter in between six and nine months, yeah. six and nine months. Do that before they come into heat, before they arrive at sexual maturity. That was just, that was the standard of care. Now we're starting to think, you know what? They probably, we probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, so what I, I recommend that if you can, if you have a female, even if you're not going to breed her, let her go through a heat, okay. then spay her. The reason we used to be so afraid of that was because the incidence of mammary cancer goes up with every additional heat that they go through. Yeah. But uh, for most dogs that aren't breeding candidates, if they go through one heat and then you spay them, you're still, the risk of mammary cancer is still very low. Additionally, mammary cancer in dogs is, the last statistic I read was 50% of them are uh, benign anyway. So you're talking about something that's really pretty unlikely compared to the likelihood of some of these orthopedic diseases. That's what um, I was just about to ask. Yeah. Talk about statistics, you know, relative statistics. It's like, yeah, you might right. increase your odds on the mammary uh, cancer and tissues and tumors. But w- in my experience, you hear a lot more about people having joint and skeletal issues than you hear about the cancer issues due to yeah. spaying your dog too late. Yeah, and a lot of um, a lot of what we know now about the cruciate injuries has to do with uh, the angle of their tibial plateau being too steep. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the procedures you may have heard of a TPLO, tibial plateau leveling osteotomy. Basically, what it means is if that if your if the lower leg in your the lower bone in your leg, your tibia, if the plateau that the condyles of the femur rest on are two angles backwards over time that creates a chronic strain on the cruciate ligaments and they just tear. So there's probably a genetic component to that as well. So um, I think as we're catching on to that, the idea would be if, you know, can genetically, can we uh, move away from this, from dogs that are really prone to having cruciate injuries, don't breed them. Um, I also hear people say if, uh, if they blow out one knee, are they likely to blow out the other one? Yeah, they are. I don't think anybody's got really good statistics on this. It probably matters a lot, um, by the breed, but I think another great thing about hunting dogs is just from a a pure functionality standpoint, I think our breeds are, are a little bit less likely to have these problems because we expect them and need them to be athletes. And, and so for the last several decades, if uh, you had a young dog that blew out its knee at two years of age, they weren't going to get bred. So these genes got removed from the gene pool. So now you end up with a lot of these hard-charging dogs that are pretty healthy thanks to the selective breeding that people had done in the past. Yeah. Now, that's not always true. Uh, and I say the, the last thing you want to have happen, if you love your breed of dog, the last thing you want to have happen is for it to get really popular because <laughs> then you start seeing unscrupulous breeders come in, just chasing the dollar sign and they'll breed anything. It's, you know? it, it really is a catch 22. It's, it's like, you. 
I mean, it, the importance of a good breed standard or even breed club, but then, like you said, it gets too popular. And next thing you know, you know, it's like you have breeders all over the place. And then mm-hmm. you have, you know, just people wanting to buy them as pets and then people that want to buy them a show. And it's like, heck, you know, we, we enjoy these breeds and dogs for a reason. Other people are as well. But it's kind of like, you know, Give me the ugliest breed out there because I want it to be the least popular because you at least yeah. know what you're dealing with in the long run. But nobody goes exactly and buys right. an ugly dog on purpose, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, cruciate injuries, uh, the state neuter thing, back to that topic. Yeah, I would, same with males, I would let them, you know, be at least a year of age before you neuter them. Yeah. Um, just to let them get that much more skeletal growth, skeletal maturity, let the joints close. Um, I mean, if you think about it, we used to, those, those gonadotropes, those sexual hormones, if you will, when you spay them at six or nine months of age, you're basically preventing any of those hormones from having any impact on your bones and joints. And um, that, when you phrase it that way, that sounds a little bit, you know, no wonder we, we run into some orthopedic problems. <laughs> yeah. It's an area that a lot of research is being done on right now. And you'll run into, you ask 10 veterinarians this, and you probably, I don't think you'd get 10 opinions, but you'd probably get, you know, six of one, four of the other. But uh, I think that on balance, what I recommend to my clients is let females go through at least one heat if you can, yeah. and let males achieve uh, sexual maturity before you neuter them. Yeah. Um, and I think it'll pay dividends. So now out of all of that, I heard a lot of physical repercussions or changes based on when you get the dogs fixed. I didn't hear anything about behavioral issues though, yeah. Mark. So if my dog is acting up in the house, you mean I can't fix it by going to get them neutered? Oh, a lot of times you can. In fact, uh, there's a lot of behavioral problems where my first if, I, if I'm doing a phone consult or something, one of my first questions will be, you know, is he or she spayed or neutered? Mm. Um, what I will tell you is that a lot of the, whether it's marking behavior or uh, other early behavioral changes that people are worried, oh, I, I want to spay and neuter them really young because I don't want that behavior to come up because if they start doing it, they'll never stop. And that's not really true. There's a difference between spaying a ma- or neutering a male dog at a year of age. A lot of some of the marking behavior, some, if your dog has some aggressive tendencies, if you neuter them, that stuff will go away. Now, if you try and neuter a six-year-old dog thinking that his behavior is going to change, it's probably not, you know, <laughs> it's ingrained by them. so there's a big difference, yeah. <laughs> big difference. I got you. I got you. Um, uh, so, so yeah, sweet spot, you know, it's, I've kind of heard it the same way since I've been involved, you know, seven or eight years, it's like all the vets that I, I come to know and, and trust and, and meet, uh, they all s- t- seem to be right in line with you males, you know, wait for a year, year and a half or so reach that mm-hmm. skeletal maturity and females wait for that first heat cycle to go through. And, uh, yeah. and you, you should be in the, in the safe, uh, area. So uh, a lot there- of the stuff we learned, even what I, most of the stuff I learned, I graduated from vet school in 1995. A lot of that stuff that we learned in vet school, it's wrong. You know, <laughs> research is happening so quickly and you got to keep up on this stuff. Yeah. You know, this, this spay and neuter stuff, that's within the last five years. Has it really come out? Um, 
So, and I get the point from the early age spay neuter advocates because we do have a pet overpopulation problem for sure. Yeah. You know, take a walk through a shelter. We get it. Yeah. But unfortunately, um, you know, not, not to be that guy, but you know, it's like, it's it's not really a spay and neuter issue. That's kind of a people issue, right? You know, if with pet overpopulation, it's just not responsible pet ownership. uh, That's really causing the pet overpopulation area in the, in the country and the world. But that is one of the things that the, it certainly hasn't uh, before COVID, which has really emptied out a lot of shelters. Yeah, you'd be hard pressed to argue that um, that some of the protocols have really changed the pet overpopulation problem. But I think we're starting to see now that there are some there are some significant health benefits from allowing your dog to be a little bit older before you spay and neuter them. Gotcha. That's I gotcha. Well, Mark, is there anything else that we've talked about, any of the topics on this episode that, that we're missing that we should touch on? Or uh, would you say that this is a good place to wrap up before we hit on next week, uh, before we jump into kind of field first aid and also uh, some of the considerations and qualifications you should hit to uh, be, quote unquote, breed ready if you're planning on wanting to breed your dogs or start your own kennel or line or so on and so forth? No, I think this is a good place. It's been a fantastic conversation. Yeah. I'm um, looking forward to talking about first aid. It's something I speak on a lot, especially as an emergency veterinarian. Um, so looking forward to the opportunity to, to keep the conversation going. So Absolutely. great talking with you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. All right, cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.